Welcome to the Designing Hollywood podcast in association with The John Campia Show. I am your host, Robert Meyer Burnett. Today's episode is sponsored by the Costumes Rental Corporation. Our guest today is a governor of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, has worked on more than 70 films, and has been nominated for five Oscars, including for work on Black Panther, Transformers, and Star Trek. He received a BAFTA nomination for his work on Star Trek and a Primetime Emmy nomination for Star Trek Picard. He's worked closely with some of the top directors in film, including Michael Bay, Ryan Coogler, Ron Howard, and Patty Jenkins. Earlier this year, you could see his work in Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. He's also just finished work with Chris Pine, who is making his directorial debut with the upcoming film, The Pool Man. And he was honored in March by the Cinema Audio Society with its prestigious Career Achievement Award. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Peter J. Devlin to the Designing Hollywood Show, our conversation already in progress. The one thing that I find when I interview with a new director, they always tell me about, you know, they don't like A to ADR. They want to stress the importance of, of the dialogue on set. And I've always found that, you know, the when you're on set, suddenly sound isn't important anymore <laughs> to the director. Even though you've had that conversation during the interview, but then it's really important in post-production because, to be honest, you, you know, when you're on set as a director, you have so many things coming at you, so many different departments, you know. So uh, it's being able to have that trust with a director that understands when you do come to say, you know, we really have an issue if you're going to be shooting three cameras here. Is it possible we don't shoot that wide camera because of the physicality of the scene? So, and that's, I find that I've, worked with directors over and over that they have that kind of level of confidence when I do talk to them about any adjustments that that uh, I don't want to use the word compromise but can certainly you know adjust how they're going to shoot the scene and they'll take it on board and say okay good point I this is a scene where I don't want to have to do ADR and we'll accommodate the sound department on this one so and I mean you know you were talking about the different noises and the things that can impact production side. I can remember on the film Daredevil, which was shot back in 2002 and three, I think it was with um, mm -hmm. uh, Ben Affleck and, and uh, Colin Farrell. We were doing a lot of nights. We were in a rooftop downtown and there was a cricket that was just making so much noise. Even though you'd think, hey, you're shooting downtown, you're dealing with traffic noise. There was one cricket that we were in the hunt for to try to quieten down <laughs> that was taking out the dialogue, you know, or on the deck of the Starship Enterprise, which looks so futuristic. But anytime that camera made a dolly move, you got a creak on the floor. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, and this kind of stuff is, is and it's, it, you know, for you guys, Everyone on a, on a film set has a different job, and everybody who's on a film set believes their job's the most important because that's the one they're doing. And and I can't tell you though how many times a, a good a good recordist uh, can save uh, someone's performance, you know, because you're using sometimes you have booms that have to go a long way, you know, and you have to be there's parts there's there's things in sets that you have to like move around to get that to get that dialogue and um it's uh it's invaluable to have that i can't stress enough 
to have a great because I also edit, so I I work in post, and man, there are times when I have missed. Like if only we were able to get that production sound. If only we had it. When you don't, it's it's can be soul crushing. So yeah, I remember uh, when working on um, any given Sunday, Oliver Stone's film. That was probably at that time just such a challenging film for me because um you know the style in which oliver works in he was he used to call it his three ring circus and certainly when we were shooting at the orange bowl we had scenes that were happening on the field in the huddle we were having scenes that were happening simultaneously on the sidelines with al pacino and then on a separate set with uh, uh aaron eckhart so um, it was, there was so much information, so many things going on at one moment, but it was definitely just such a rewarding film to be a part of and to have worked with that caliber of actors. I mean, you had Charlton Heston, Dennis Quaid, Al Pacino, James Woods, Cameron Diaz. And I remember there was a, a particular scene where we basically were shooting a film back then and it was kind of a... a Al Pacino was coming to see Cameron Diaz and it was one of the kind of longest speeches in the film, 10 minutes long. And it was electric from, from action to cut. It was one of those moments where the hair stands up near the back of your head. That has happened many times for me in different performances, but just to watch Al Pacino and, and Cameron together was amazing. So many scenes in that film were just brilliant. You know, you, the, the locker room scene. Well, that's what you know, I was going to, I was going to ask okay. you because the, the speech Al Pacino gives one of the great speeches of all time. We fought for every inch, you know, that's right. what I had, and I have to he ask, says, you know, when you get, he says, you know, when you get old in life, things get taken away from you. That's part of life. Life is just a game of inches. <laughs> so was football, you know? So, and well, uh, Kevin, I, Jerky, Kevin, Kevin Jerky, I was my boom operator in that and Mike Schmidt, and, uh, you know, I just, I still, when I see that clip played, I can remember the day, I can remember my crew on that set, and we walked away from that day, and we knew that that's, that speech, you know, will live on, and oh, it, it does. It's one of the great, now I've got to ask, when 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 they were blocking or rehearsal, and you have to figure out what level you're re- going to record an Al Pacino speech at well, did you have to did you have to ride the inputs and make sure because was for you is that it was that a daunting task recording Al well the, the one thing that can strike fear into many sound mixers and sound teams is when they say hey we're just going to shoot the rehearsal <laughs> so it's not a rehearsal so you've got to be prepared for the dynamic range and yeah Al certainly by that point in the movie, I knew to be prepared for everything. You got to be quick on the on the faders there. So, and uh, I don't think we had any distortion or anything like that through the the course of that movie. Fortunately, and I had a great team with me as well, and a second unit. Sal Tatino was our cinematographer on that, and that was his first film. And as a collaborator, Sal was just amazing because there were times where he did make changes camera wise to allow us to do what we need to do. And that isn't always the situation. Um, Cause sometimes I'm not saying all cinematographers, but they can somewhat be myopic. And I understand that they're in the heat of battle there, but,
but when you have somebody like on any given Sunday, Sal, who, when you go to him, explain your problem, he'll say, okay, we need to get the sign guys in here. Terrific. (laughs) Well, I've got to ask you also in terms, not just Oliver Stone, but You've worked with Michael Bay, who's known for his bayhem, you know, on set, blows a lot of stuff up. What's it like being a sound mixer on a Michael Bay set? <laughs> I would imagine. Is well, it dangerous? <laughs> Do you fear I, for your I life? Can, you know, I, when I talk about, you know, when you're reading off the number of films that I've worked on and your life flash before your eyes, I can literally remember my very first day working with Michael and uh, Kevin my boom man, I was staying at his house through the course of the film. We both came home that day absolutely exhausted, think, trying to figure out how are we going to get through this for the next, you know, 48 days. This was exhausting because he moves at such an accelerated pace. He shoots really fast. And, um, you know, he multiple cameras. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it was definitely um, an enlightening experience. And uh, I remember just Will and Martin, their characters on the first day were much more serious. And it took probably about a week or so for them to find the humor in their characters. So it was kind of fun to watch that development. But I have to say, when Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer came to the set for the first time in in 94, I had a flashback to sitting in Belfast watching the movie Top Gun and saying, God, I'd love to work for these guys someday. <laughs> wow. And then uh, that's so great that you, you actually got yeah. to, uh, to, to do that. I mean, all the way back to, uh, uh, well, I guess was bad boys. Was that bad boys the first time? Cause that was the first, was that the first time you worked with Michael Bay? I think it was. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that also the first time. Uh, so Simpson Bruckheimer too. went on to do, uh, Pearl Harbor, The Island, mm-hmm. the Transformers movies. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it, it's, I mean, you talk about Bayhem. I mean, Michael has such a really distinct visual style and an appreciation of sound as well. You know, um, he does, he does say sometimes about sound, I don't care, but he does care. At the end of the day, he does, and he does accommodate when he, when he decides to, not maybe when I want him to accommodate sound, but <laughs> no, he, he is somebody that has got his fingerprint over every frame on that film and every sound on that film. So, and his films sound very big now, but going back to Bad Boys, yeah, that, that was fun. And then obviously the sequel was a bigger budget. And that movie's insane too. <laughs> the second insane. one's just... And the, there's a car carrier sequence where cars getting are flipped off a car carrier. I was there with a little portable recorder because uh, it wasn't scripted, but the Haitians that were on the car carrier were all ad living. So I had to capture that on the day. And Michael is someone who hates looping. He's like, we'll do it. Just say, I don't want to loop this. No, absolutely not. So the pressure is on to make sure that every dialogue, every word spoken makes it into the, into the, into the final edit and and into theaters so but you know if i can just take it back to uh the 80s as i was sitting watching these films i was like huge fan of you know star trek star trek is a film that you know the television series first of all loved the tv show and can remember standing in line at the new vic theater in belfast 97 and <laughs> sorry 1979 to watch the motion picture yeah coming out going 
hmm, that wasn't quite what I was expecting. <laughs> then seeing Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, thinking that's more like it. And then to be standing on the deck of the Enterprise and to meet Leonard Nimoy. Unbelievable. Just yeah, I, that, uh, that, that's such a great story that you got to, to meet him. Um, and he has a great, he has such a distinct voice as well. Uh, which is great. Now, I've got to ask you, you've worked on a lot of Marvel movies. Actually, you've worked on DC movies, too, for Patty Jenkins, Wonder Woman. Um, but, you know, you worked on Iron Man 3 with Shane Black, and then you went on and did The Nice Guys. But what's it like like with Marvel, with all the NDAs and all the secrecy? Are you a fan? First of all, did you grow up a fan of, of comic books, and did you have the, the same feeling as well when you stepped on your first Marvel set that, oh, my God, I'm I'm working on... I'm working on a Marvel movie. Yes, I used to um, pick, pick uh, Marvel comics and, and DC as well. Yeah, in in Belfast. No, but I wasn't a huge collector. Um, but you know, I kind of got into the superhero world when I did the television series Superboy back right. in 1988. So it was like I still it's now 2023 and I'm about to start a, another Marvel show, which obviously NDA can't say what that is. <laughs> right. So, but that's later in in June or so. So, but um, yeah, I I seem to whether it's robots, outer space, people in uh, capes, it's it's <laughs> a kind of running a theme here in the. And on on the recordings that I've made over the last uh, thirty years or so. Well, let me ask you this: the the obviously the you you went back all the way to the jazz singer, the first sound film. With digital technology increasing all the time, has your job changed over the last thirty years drastically, or or is it just using new newer newer tools, or is it essentially the same? Uh, I think the the evolution of technology has definitely made our job easier in terms of, of, of being able to offer more to post-production. So uh, when I think of, you know, those, those early days in, in Hollywood where they were, you know, they were experimenting and uh, because of the technology changes, it then created difficult situations and set, whether it be the fact that, once sound came along, suddenly cameras had to be enclosed in booths. Then they had to figure out how do we make cameras quieter to be able to move them along. When we were recording back, the, uh, it was a, a Vitaphone system that was yeah. uh, recording onto records. And now we've evolved from, you know, when I started back in the 80s, we were recording to single track quarter inch on location, which then evolved into digital audio 16-bit um dat tapes yep which was a medium that was more really a consumer uh consumer product but adapted to to work in film and then we went into the digital recorders from four track recorders which i've used uh, with saxcom and then into now 24 tracks so it has allowed us to be able to as i say give more choices to post-production, which is what our aim is. We're trying to give as clean a dialogue as possible so that they can manipulate it and do as much as possible in post-production. And uh, for the CAS, I did a series of podcasts with uh, retired production mixers. And the one question I would put to them was, knowing that the technology that there's around today, 
would you have liked to have had that back in like I was talking to Charlie Wilborn, you know, who did The Godfather Part Two. I was talking to David McMillan, who's retired now, who did The Right Stuff and oh. won the Academy Award for The Right Stuff and Apollo 13 and Speed. Bill Kaplan, who's, you know, Bill Kaplan, who did Back to the Future and has been Robert Zemeckis' partner. And they all came up with the same thing. Look, we didn't know about any future technology. We just had to make it work with what we had at the time. So, you know, looking forward, I don't know what it's going to be like in 10 years' time. I just know that in the course of the 30 years that I've been doing feature recording, all the tools that have come out have certainly made it better for me and made it more, given the post-production folks, much more choices to be able to create and build on what I do on set and see it through the finals, those frames on the big screen in front of an audience. I'm hoping that kind of answers the question in terms of technology. No, it's no, it's a great answer. And I, I, you know, I've always thought that we've seen it evolve certainly in post-production editorial technology has revolutionized the, the art of editing. I mean, the computer technology that we've been able to, to, to rely on and i know that digital recording microphones everything has become even better and like you said it's it's all in the service of of making sure that those soundtracks that you're recording get into post-production they've got the best sound possible um you know it's funny you've been on some movies that like i loved kong skull island (laughs) it was but i would ask like if you're recording something that's a more comedic and you, when when actors have a tendency to start say ad libbing, is that more difficult for you having to like wonder what they're going to do on the fly if you haven't seen something? You talked about the Haitians in um, in the Transformers or in the Bad Boys mm-hmm. movies, like I guess Bad Boys Two. If if you have that, is it hard for you to run and gun like that? Would you prefer not to do it? Well. I haven't done any Judd Apatow movies, but I know people that have. <laughs> and that's a very kind of evolving set with actors right. ad-libbing, where every actor has their own microphone. I know that one of the toughest jobs I did was, and it was called The Guilt Trip with Barbara Streisand and Seth Rogen. And there's quite a bit of ad-libbing on that. But it was more to do with the kind of lighting configurations that I had to deal with. But that uh, can kind of give me a, an insight into the world of ad living. But now, because of the technology and because of the tools that we have, we're basically able to give more actors microphones. And that allows them to kind of go in and do select cuts performance-wise and also clean up um if there are any issues with radio microphones getting thumped, because you find a lot of actors, and I'll just demonstrate yours, is they love to do that. If they're, oh. and that will take out a line of dialogue very easily. Yeah. And in and just touching on superhero suits, that's a, another thing that those can be. Um, that takes preparation with the costume designer to find ways in which to be able to integrate microphones into costumes. So it is an art in itself. And the people that I've worked with that have worked as utilities or second assistant signs or boom operators, there's a skill level that they must have and they do have to be able to go to set every day and identify a costume and say, okay, I know that's going to work if we put that mic there. And for Wakanda Forever, I sat down with uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth Carter, Ruth Carter yeah. um, 
who's been on the show about before. two months. I, I know that's right. And uh, Ruth went through all the wardrobe for the show to kind of work with me to figure out a plan to get those mics there because, uh, <coughs> excuse me, there are some wardrobes that can basically um, compromise the quality of your sound. And the first thing I do is, as I say, I go through that script and I kind of figure out uh, which actors I'm going to be dealing with, find out who the costume designer is and start working at an early stage how to um, kind of figure out the, I don't want to say problem, but figure out what lies ahead and how we can kind of integrate the microphones into those costumes. The, the, the quality of sound will always be severe when you've got a mic over somebody's head, which is, you know, it's a very, you know, when you think not a lot has changed since the advent of that kind of first recording on, on uh, the jazz singer having a microphone over somebody's head, we still need to do it. And recently I saw, there was a still picture of, um, I think it was Tom Cruise on one of the Mission Impossible movies. And there was a boom pole and a microphone. And the comment was, what is that? Hadn't they figure out a new technology where you don't have a microphone over an actor? Well, fortunately, we do. And <laughs> that microphone works really well and will continue to do so. So I think that to me, I, I still amazes me that, you know, if you strip away just all the mechanics of filmmaking, it all comes down to performance, a camera and a microphone above an actor. Yeah, I mean it really does, and that's 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 what you're getting, and and it really hasn't changed much. Um, and you've gone from, you know, you've worked on more independent stuff and the biggest of the big budget movies, but your job pretty much stays the same, doesn't it? No matter what the budget yes, of the film I mean, is, whatever the budget is, um, you know, I I worked with Chris Pine on his directorial debut, Pool Man, and. The, we all used, they used practical locations there because they didn't have the money to build sets. Right. And you'll find that on those smaller films that that's the way you have to go and you'll be um, have to deal with those practical locations and everything that comes with that. Uh, I did a movie um, with Rodrigo Garcia called Last Days in the Desert and we were shooting down in Borrego Springs and uh, Chivo Emmanuel Emmanuel Lebeski was the cinematographer on it. And we were up at sunrise out into the desert and you'd think it would be the most quiet environment. But <laughs> sadly, we had the Canadian military air force team doing practice jumps <laughs> above us parachuting. <laughs> so it was like, it was miles away. And, you know, and last days in the desert supposed to take place 2000 years ago. And all I can hear is, Pop planes above us, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and yeah. then the other thing is, if sometimes if you're shooting at an airport, one of the comments I get is, you know, what do you want us to do? We're shooting in an airport. <laughs> you know, that you just have to live with that soundtrack. But no, those are the things that, you know, you don't want to get on the soundtrack because that will take out performance. Oh so yeah. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you'll get lucky though. That I've been very lucky at airports. Touchwood. <laughs> well, one of the things I like about what what you guys do too is, of of all the jobs on the on the set, you're probably closest in terms of the performance of the actor because you're hearing it all, you know. And I've found sometimes that that um, asking, going back and asking the sound mixer what 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 they thought in terms of performance, sometimes even that can be. I don't know if anybody does that 
with you, but you know, you know what they've said. You 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 know, and mm-hmm. and and has anyone ever? Do directors ever come and ask, or do actors say? I'm sure. Well, actors say it all the time. How was that? But um, do you ever get consulted <laughs> about like which performance of the Consulting, ten? You just... um, surprisingly, you know, uh, Oliver Stone used to talk about performance t- to me after, especially with in Al Pacino's scene as Tony D'Amato. You know, just little moments. Asked me what I thought. Uh, Michael Bay is, a, is another one that has talked to me about performance. Patty Jenkins. So people that you kind of have a relationship with. And then there are some directors that just, you know, they're on a mission. They've got to go. And, right. You know, as soon as they take those headphones on, they're on the set. So, but there was, uh, I really enjoyed working with Bob Rafelson. I did a film called Blood and Wine. Blood and Wine, yeah. Which was kind of a noir, noir film there, uh, although it was set in the 90s not the 40s or 50s, but um, Tom Siegel was the uh, cinematographer on it. It had a very distinctive look to it. And it was fun to watch the relationship between Bob Rafelson and, and Jack Nicholson because they had a, a, a friendship and a partnership dating back to, I think, the Monkees, uh, <laughs> which they both produced back in the 60s. But there were scenes in that film that were just, uh, you know, you could feel the tension in the room with the actors. I mean, not that it was the actors personally, right. but performance-wise with with Michael Caine and Jack Nicholson or Judy Davis and, and Jack Nicholson. And those are things that as a production mixer, you feel very fortunate to be a part of. And that's what has always interested me, to be able to kind of be on set to, to record those moments and uh, then, you know, the post-production, the, the re-recording mixers, they deal with other issues right? in that process that I may not well be aware of. <laughs> so, but uh, I've, I've had uh, post-production folks come out and spend time with me on set and it gives them kind of a perspective, a different perspective on what our job is and what we have to do to get what they need. And I think that's, that's important to do, but I, you know, I, I can think of so many different wonderful performances. I did a movie was called skeleton key and uh, with Kate Hudson and Jenna mm-hmm. Rollins and John Hurt. And uh, it's a very underrated kind of horror movie. It's not even really even a horror movie. It is a suspenseful movie. And that was a great film to be a part of. And, you know, I was mentioning the the nice guys there with with oh. uh, Russell Crowe. Oh, how much fun Ryan was Gosling. that? <laughs> that that was fun. That that was yeah. That was and and you know Russell comes from a perspective of you know he's very specific. He knows what he wants to because he's has directed as well. So Philippe Russolo was our cinematographer, and um, and then Shane Black. It was a really fabulous mix of, of folks there. And, you know, when you're shooting, you're never quite sure is the humor going too far here. There's a scene where Russell Crowe breaks the arm of Ryan Gosling and he lets out this horrific scream, (laughs) which, you know, I can still hear today. (laughs) Uh, But watching those two bounce off each other, that's the joy of being a a production mixer, being of a production team. And then there, you know, there are films that... You know, gone in sixty seconds. Watching Nick Cage at work—that that was fun to do. I did two films with him. Yeah, very two very distinctive characters with uh, Gone Sixty Seconds, and then um, the um, National Treasure movies. Yep. So, yeah. You know, 
And then with um, uh, on the Black Panther film, working with with Chadwick Boseman, he was just um, such a unique and wonderful actor who I never saw him as any one but T'Challa because he stayed in character. And there are actors that stay in character and he stayed in character until the very end when he handed off his his microphone to us and then he was Chadwick. (laughs) And on the film Frost Nixon, Frank Langella stayed in character as Mr. President the whole movie. When we'd go in to put a microphone on him, we'd have to address him as Mr. President. So, and that was to watch Michael Sheen and Frank Langella together. And they had just done the uh, stage version. They were the most rehearsed actors I've ever seen because they, you know, they'd done it on stage up in right. New York for a period of time. And they only ever flubbed their lines once. And it was both in the same scene. So, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I'm getting excited listening to just, you know, just recounting the stories of being on set to watch performance, you know, and, uh, when I worked with Kenneth Branagh on Thor, uh, I can remember as you know a 19-year-old in Belfast on his first TV show, and I'm the lowest of the low on the totem pole in the sound department. Kind of just, uh, I, it was amazing to watch somebody who spoke in a British accent, English accent, who would then go on set and speak in a perfect Belfast accent. Uh, because he was originally born in Belfast, and I don't know if you've seen the movie Belfast yeah. that he directed. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So but... wonderful, wonderful film. Mm-hmm. I loved, I loved Belfast. Well, I mean, this is it, you've worked on so many different, uh, different films, and uh, what a what a career that you've had. Could you ever have imagined, you know, back seeing Jaws in the theater back in Belfast, that you would have had not just come to Hollywood but work with. I mean, you've worked with everybody. <laughs> Even the ca- I mean, the, the cast of Bullet Train is half the cast of Hollywood. <laughs> just, I mean, yeah, and we shot that during the height of the pandemic as well. Yeah, so that was not easy. My kudos to my team of of uh, David Raymond, who literally almost had a surgical going on, you know, goggles, mask, <laughs> on a train, trying to to boom that, um, but. <laughs> Yeah, but I have to mention you're talking about that kind of being back in Belfast from watching movies. You know, I can, you know, remember watching and the joy of watching Christopher Reeve fly for the first time, Superman, sitting in the West End in London, uh, watching um, John Carpenter's The Thing, and just <laughs> that blew my mind. To then interviewing Tommy Causey, who was the production mixer, on The Thing, and who also he did you know big trouble in little china and halloween he was john carpenter's mixer so that i've been very fortunate in the people that i've met and the opportunities that have been given to me and and uh it was i i i did a letter writing campaign when i worked at the bbc because i i was trying to figure out how to get into movies i wrote to clint eastwood i wrote to Steven Spielberg, all trying to visit the set. So if you can imagine, I'm in Belfast, I'm working in radio, television, music shows, current affairs, going out doing documentaries, but also writing to say, hey, are there any job opportunities? Is it possible to visit the set? And I wrote to Michael Mann, who was, he was writing the uh, television, uh, producing 
the series Miami Vice. Yeah. So this was 1987, and it was number one on the BBC at the time. And I just couldn't get over these two cool detectives, these <laughs> hip detectives, Crockett and Tubbs, the cinematography, the music. And I wrote to Michael Mann saying, Dear Mr. Mann, would it be possible to visit the set of Miami Vice? And within about two months, I got a letter. I think it was actually a month. I got a letter back inviting me to the set of Miami Vice and to post-production at Universal Studios. So that letter to Michael Mann is why I'm here right now. That opened the door for me to get into the industry in the U.S. So, By the way, I just want to point out, kids watching at home, that doesn't always happen. You might write your favorite director, (laughs) and that doesn't mean you're going to get invited to the set of Miami Vice. (laughs) That's really cool that he did that. Did you go? Yes, I went. uh, I I went in the summer of 1987, and I can remember going to set and an assistant director coming up to me saying, don't talk to the actors. Don't talk to the actors. I'm like, I want to see the sign crew. That's who I, I want to meet. And it was a mixer called Joe Foglia, and it was his boom operator, Scott Blender, and his utility, Vince Nuccio, who were kind enough to kind of show me the equipment that they were using. And I just couldn't get over the you know Panavision cameras, the cranes, the <laughs> Testarossa. There's Don Johnson. There's a guy that looks like Don Johnson. No, that's his double. You know, and all the directors, producers, chairs, director chair. I mean, it was big budget. And then I spent three days with them went to Los Angeles and I sat in with the editing crew as they were watching the rushes or the dailies from the show. And then I got invited to the scoring stage for the crime story. Wow. And that's where, where Michael Mann was working. He was in Vegas. So I never got to meet him, but I left a bottle of Bushmills, Bushmills whiskey on his desk with a little thank you note. And uh, I went back to Belfast and thought, I've got to figure out how to work in the States. I want to work in the movies. I want to work in television. And about six months later, I got a call from the production mixer, Joe Foglia, on the, on the show, uh, who was still working on the show, and said, you know, if you're interested, my company's small, but I do Miami Vice nine months of the year. There's nobody here to do other work, commercials, industrials. Would you be interested in, you know, coming out and doing that work? And uh, I went to my boss at the BBC and asked him if it would be possible to take a year's leave of absence in case it didn't work out. And he said, no, if you leave, that's it. So I left in Christmas of 87 and went to Miami and worked for uh, Joe's company for a couple of years and then um, went independent and eventually moved out to L.A. in 2002. That's amazing. And I got to meet Michael Mann. (laughs) <laughs> I got to meet because I, several many years later, I interviewed for Miami Vice the movie. Yeah, the Colin was... Farrell, Jamie Fox one, and you know when I went into the interview, I said, "Mr. Man, you know you and I actually have a connection because many years ago, I asked to visit the set of Miami Vice, and here's the letter you sent to me, and then that <laughs> took our interview in a whole other direction." So. And I got offered the job, but I had to pass on it because the date kept pushing as to the start date, start date kept pushing. And uh, so I wasn't able to do it. So, and another production mixer, David Ronnie. But to sit across from Michael Mann and tell him that, you know, I'm basically here because of your kindness, 
because of you answering that letter to a kid from Belfast in 1987. So that's, I still, I mean, you know, it's 2023, you know, I can't believe it sometimes. But that's incredible. I mean, this is a great, I'm, I'm so glad you told these stories because this is a very different, I mean, it shows what perseverance can do, you know, and, and of course you have to be good at your job, obviously. So, but it's amazing that you were able to go, like you said, go from Belfast all the way out. I mean, I don't know if that would even happen today. I don't know if mm-hmm. somebody could write, would write a letter to a director and if a director, I mean, with social media, it's easier to get to people. But back then you had to put out, you had to put pen to paper and then write something. And then he had to have read it. A lot of the time, assistants read it. The director never never yeah. answers. You know, you never get... I mean, hell, I get emails from people I want to answer and I forget to answer them. Um, I try to answer all of my emails because uh, I, I have a copy of a letter that I wrote to Clint Eastwood in, like, 1985. <laughs> they read it. Oh, my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> so, dear Mr. Eastwood, <laughs> would it be possible to visit your set of your film? <laughs> well, before I let you go... What advice um, can you give to people who are the, – the great thing about learning nowadays, whether you're talking on, on YouTube or whether you're working on a film or a television show or recording music, I mean the idea of understanding the the dynamics of sound and how voices interact with microphones and all that, the science of all of that is not going to change. Um, what can you recommend? Where can people start if they want to get into this profession? There, there is so much information online now today that back in 1981, I went to the library and got a book on sound recording techniques. And that is what I used in my first interview. So the resources that are available online, you know, even the podcast that I did for the CAS with some of the greatest production mixers here in Hollywood, it's amazing the stories that they tell from working back in the 60s and 70s right through to the day. So, you know, there are a lot more colleges and schools that offer courses. There's a lot, it's a lot easier to reach out to people. You know, um, what the, the Academy runs a gold program. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And the, new, the museum is offering workshops. Just two weeks ago, they did a Foley workshop. You know, there is, there is stuff to be, getting at i mean you can you know you can go online and do a course on cinematography or directing everybody seems to be offering courses these days so there is no shortage but it's perseverance or being able to kind of uh, make a connection i just had an email from a young man in the west of ireland who's uh at a college there and he was you know i don't know how he found me email but he just wanted to ask me for some advice he's doing a three-minute piece from Black Panther, and they're basically having to rebuild the soundtrack from scratch. So wow. it's, being, it's great to be able to talk to him about here this when it comes to recording because they're redoing the dialogue as part of the, of the class. Right. And uh, this is what I would do if you're doing, you know, Perman's ADR, trying to match what we do in production. You can't have the perspective force too close. So... But no, it's 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 great. There's there's just um, as I say, no shortage of the ability of anybody to kind of find what it is that they want to do in this business, and as long as they're willing to put in the hard work. Mm. Well, that's I mean that's great advice. 
Well, Peter, definitely, this is so great to have spoken to you today. Um, I've never talked with anyone uh, in sound, and this has been a real treat, and your stories are great. I mean, you've worked with everybody, and your your filmography is incredible. And, well, um, you know, I, you know I, I, we could talk for another hour. You know, I, signed is, you, you talk to me about just the, you know, the importance of signed. It is such a, it, it affects us on such an emotional level. And recently, I went to see, uh, and I'd never seen this in the big screen, Lawrence of Arabia by David Lean. And I saw it over at the Academy Museum, oh. and it was 70 millimeter and six track. The theater was filled of all ages, which was fabulous. Yeah. And all I could think about was that poor production sign crew in 120 degree heat in 1962, probably the simplest of equipment. And the, the production mixer, what guy was, a, his name was Paddy Cunningham, and he did it. He did many of David Lean's films, and it won the Academy Award. But back then, it was the um, it wasn't the team that it wasn't the people that actually did the work that accepted the Oscar. It was actually the kind of the person that ran the sound department back in oh. London got the award. Yeah. So, but the, going to see it, that film on the big screen, gave me hope for the fact that cinema is still alive and well. The fact that you got an audience in the middle of a week to see that on the big screen and to hear it in six track was phenomenal. And I wasn't hearing it in Atmos, just six track and it's still connected. It still had, you know, such an impact. Amazing. And that's why I still love going to the movies. I no, I, I, I do too. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the quality of cinema. We just need to get those stories. I don't think they could even make, Lawrence of Arabia today it would never be the same movie you'd see all the mm-hmm. all those big wide shots the battle sequences it would all be CG it would you know when you're watching Lawrence of Arabia that what you're seeing it, it was there you know they had to have it some of those shots in the desert those the cameras are like half a mile back and you're looking at these mm-hmm. giant tableaus it's I watched it recently myself and it's it's incredible you know that that's mm-hmm. what that's what movies are you know and, and then I don't know if you know that that David Lean when he did Ryan's Daughter, which was he shot over in in the west of Ireland, that the reviews were so bad in that film he gave up production. He he said that's it, I'm done. Yeah. Which is a what would it be like today? I mean, when you as a filmmaker, it's so tough because everybody's a critic, and if you can go online, you'll get hammered somewhere. So uh, and to think that David, we were robbed of David Lean making films as a result of some snarky review somewhere. I know, and it, it, it's true. And you have to remember how much, because people, you know, when they watch a movie for two hours, they take it for granted. Somebody might have worked on it literally for, like Martin Scorsese wanted to make Gangs in New York for 20 years. You know, it took him 20 years yeah. to get it made. So you just never know. Well, Peter, this has been so much fun speaking with you. Oh, you've got great stories, and, and I know you can't tell us what Marvel movie you're working on next, but I'm a big fan <laughs> I'm a big fan of the Marvel Universe. Let's say I'm rolling. I won't say it, but I'm rolling through my Rolodex of my mind. You know, I think Captain America New World Order is already shooting. So what comes after that? <laughs> um, but uh, it's good to be involved with Marvel. I mean, it's it's uh, and you've been doing it for a while. I mean, you go back Thor, you're you're old, you're OG. Thor, Thor was one of the right. foundational uh, 
foundational films working with Kenneth Branagh. I mean, mm-hmm. and he, 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 you know, it's funny. I never, I always wondered, would we believe that the Iron Man, that Thor and that Captain America would all work? If, if that didn't work, if audiences didn't believe in those three movies, there never would be an Avengers. So it was pretty amazing. It was such a great move on their part to get Kenneth Branagh to direct Thor. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the great moves in cinema history when Kevin Feige's like, okay. And before that, he did Cinderella, the live-action right. Cinderella. Or maybe he did that after. I think he might have done it right before. So he was he was already in with Disney, so it was smart. And that was before Disney mm-hmm. even owned the MCU. It was pre, I think it was pretty yeah. And then I date back to Daredevil, which at that time yeah. was a Fox property. You know, yeah, which is, which is crazy because uh, John Favreau, was in that, and then he ends up directing, uh, directing a uh, Spider-Man. I mean, Spider-Man, uh, yeah. Iron Man. You know, and, and uh, incredible. I really like that movie, the director's cut of of Daredevil. I really enjoy. I think uh, I know it's, it's it's twenty years, and I think uh, Mark Stephen Johnson just uh, was interviewed recently about it. Though, and I have a fourteen-year-old, so I think maybe it's time to revisit the director's cut myself. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like it. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm I'm a fan. I thought Ben Affleck did a great job, and now we're going to see him play Batman in the Flash <laughs> again. So that's crazy in the Flash. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, sir Peter. It was so great to have you, Peter Devlin. It was so great to have you here on the Designing Hollywood podcast. Thanks for having me, and thank you to our very impressive sponsor, Costumes Rental Corporation. The variety of costumes at Costumes Rental Corporation is expansive. CRC is recognized worldwide as the premier supplier of military and police costume uniform rentals. Costumes Rental Corporation takes pride in its commitment to each customer, helping to produce the type of exceptional look needed for a successful production. A special thank you to founder and executive producer Martika Ibarra, co-founder, costume designer, the legendary Marilyn Vance, and of course, John Campia from The John Campia Show. Our technical director is Taylor Gonzalez. Thank you to all of our viewers for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, tune in to the audio version wherever you listen to podcasts. I am, of course, your host, Robert Meyer Burnett, and you can find me on Instagram at rmburnett, or find me on Twitter at burnettrm, or on YouTube at postgeeksingularity. Thanks very much. Like, subscribe, and give us your comments. What would you like to see on the channel? Right down below. Thanks very much for watching, and we'll see you on the next episode of Designing Hollywood.